the podcast of science fiction, science fiction fandom and cake etymology. I am glad that we said we'd speak less about cake this episode. Uh, That's going well so far. Hello everyone and welcome to the 35th episode of Octothorpe, which is coming to you on the 8th of July 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we are recording early this week because it's coming home. It's coming home, listeners. It's coming home. And by it, I of course mean Liz. Yes, the the reason we are recording early is because... It's coming home. Fingers crossed... Um, you know, don't want to jump the gun. Um, but should I uh, test negative for coronavirus on Saturday, on Sunday, I will get on a plane and come to the UK. And how long are you going to be in the UK? I don't know. I haven't booked the return flight yet. Um, probably mid-August. What? That's crazy. I didn't realise you'd not booked the return flight yet. That <sighs> is a level of that is a level of freewheeling spontaneity I have never achieved in my life. So I'm slightly in awe of that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever managed to not book one leg of the transportation. I mean, you know, obviously there could be like a day or two between all the bookings getting sorted because it's such a pain, but but no more than that. I, I don't feel comfortable about holidays until I know how I'm getting from place to place for the whole time. And to be fair, often if you don't have a passport for the country you're going to, the people at the border don't feel good about your holiday if you don't have the return leg booked either. Yes, this is only possible. This is only possible because the UK are basically obliged to let me in and they're not allowed to tell me a day I have to leave again, um, which is not true of any other country in the world. Take that, pretty. <laughs> it's coming um, home and there's nothing you can do about it. Please, please don't do anything about it. If you can, don't. Is it too late to give me COVID so I test positive? It probably... Probably isn't. So, yeah, don't do anything, listeners. Um, There are boring technical reasons why I've only booked one way, which we do not need to expand on in the podcast. We have some letters of comment. Um, So, Chris Garcia sends a lock which contains 100% cheese and cake related content. Um, And he's right. A bit like our convention, really. A bit like last week's podcast, really. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, I think we should apologise to anyone whose first <laughs> episode of Octothorpe was last week and are like, what are these people on? Because they have just witted about cheese and parties for an entire hour. And we would like to um, apologise to anyone who is coming to this episode as their second episode and has the opinion that it is not nearly enough about cheese and cake. Uh, it, you know, bo- both opinions are entirely valid. Yeah, now, I read chris garcia's comment which said 100 percent cheese and cake related and it said trezite shows is the best of all cakes trailing only red velvet and carrot cake and the thing that struck me about this is that i like cake very much except for red velvet cake and carrot cake so i'm worried now (laughs) oh i forgot that you don't like carrot cake I feel like I have a spectrum of cake and I really don't like those cakes. I I mean, I much prefer my perfect cake is maybe a brownie or a lemon drizzle cake. I'm kind of into the solid Scottish cakes with not too much frippery type cake. 
I'm about to get us some letters of comment, um, so just uh, regard the mastery with which I do this. Uh, but I think you'll find brownies are not cakes. So, you know. Well, that's a load of bollocks for a start off. You can't disagree with me too much on the podcast, Alison, because then people won't write in. What, what makes you think that brownies are not cakes, John? If they were cakes, they would be called brownie cakes or, you know, chocolate cakes or something ending in cake. Because it is my observation that things that are cake have the word cake in them. Okay, so, no, right. No, I, you know, as, as I'll I, die just... on this hill. There are many hills I'll die on, and this is indeed one of them. Um, I'm like, I'm like the Rome of podcast hosts. Oh, Jesus. You do understand. So you'll probably say that a pie is a pie if it had pie in the name, rather than, or and a tart if it has tart in the name, rather than pies being pies and tarts being fundamentally determined by the amount of pastry coverage i will say bloody love me some carrot cake cream cheese topping Mm-mm. No, yum, yum, yum. no 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 and i don't put beetroot in brownies either before you ask i think alison alison i think is on record as as being anti-vegetables in cake. <laughs> exactly that is if i had to nail you to a personal philosophy that would be it what I'm going to say is that I have a long history in fandom already of having discussions about the classification of baked goods, um, and I, I'm going to shy away from starting any completely new ones. But I will say, what about, say, uh, madeleines? They're cakes, right? Well, they're not called a madeleine cake. But that's because they're French. They're gâteau. <laughs> She's got oh, you there, Liz. So there's a French She's exception. What about banana bread? Yeah, banana bread's a cake. There we go. And in fact, all of those breads, like Dayton Walnut Loaf, they're all cakes, along with brownies. But banana bread isn't a cake. It's one of your five a day. Different. That's not true. Okay, that is true, but only if you eat like half the loaf, <laughs> at which point you have other problems that's not five a day related. Swiss roll. Far. Swiss roll? That's a very complicated sandwich. Or alternatively, mm. it's a cake. All right, all right, all right. Right, onwards, onwards. Spike has sent us an email with a poem in it from a poem a day service she subscribes to and I have found the poem on the internet so I will put a link in the show notes and it is entitled Commas by Miller Oberman um, so it is very related to our recent convention. Thank you very much to Spike. Farah Mendelssohn tweeted to show a picture of Freddy, which is Farah's cat, listening to the podcast with Farah at the live recording at Punctuation 2. So if you like pictures of people's cats, I will put the link to that tweet in the show notes. And uh, Peter Sullivan emailed during the live recording as well, I think, or perhaps the day after, saying that there is a US diplomacy games convention called the Boston Massacre, uh, which is going online this year and is going to have rounds at 8am, 4pm and midnight UTC. And um, if you play in all three, only your best two scores count. So that is another way of doing uh, international things, which is basically force everyone to stay up for 24 hours and then no one can sleep. And that just seems like a wizard scheme. Um, so, yes. Nessum Dorma. Wait. Nessum Dorma. Bless you. <laughs> and then, hello, Brian tweeted us to say, also, why the bleeps? What is this? The f***ing BBC. It is not the BBC. Although, you know, if the culture minister wants to give us any money uh, because we're a public benefit, uh, we're always in. 
Uh, I also do a mean line in PPE, but I understand that gravy train has come to an end lately. Don't worry, there'll be more gravy trains. But you're not a mate of anyone relevant, so not for you. Oh, are you? Some of my friends are very relevant, I'll have you know. And finally, we had another email from Fran Dowd, who wrote us a lock about PIMS. She is researching the history and perception of the PIMS brand and recipes, and her conviction that you should add more gin appears to be a modernish blip that came and went. I would argue it hasn't gone, Fran, as long as you and I sustain it. Uh, I always add gin to my PIMS because, well, it's just better that way. Uh, highly recommend anyone try it. And she also says that she's going to be experimenting with making her own PIMS, but she doesn't mention anything about hookers nor blackjack. We had one final comment from Graham Slight who said that he was awaiting eagerly the tell me what to think about Discon and the Hugo's Octothorpe. And that is what we call, listeners, a segue. Now, I'm a member of staff for Discon 3. Um, I am a member of staff for Discon 3 and Discon 3 haven't told me anything about what I should or should not say about this because Discon 3 do not have a clear promotional voice that they insist all of their staff adhere to. On the other hand, Glasgow in 2024 set out some very clear rules. Oh, oh wait, you've got some clear promotion. So wait, Glasgow have some clear promotional rules about what you're allowed to say about Discon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Discon, they basically said... Do try not to spout off at the mouth about this. I mean, I, I, I'm slightly <laughs> paraphrasing. Did, they, did they email it just to you personally, Alison? <laughs> to the whole staff? So, Meg, if you're listening, I'm very sorry. I do not speak um, officially for Glasgow in 2024, which I think everyone knows at this point. Yes. Liz, would you like to explain about Discon and the Hugos? Okay, I'm going to suggest to anyone who wants to know further details of what I'm about to summarise, read... Uh, Jason Sanford's genre grapevine uh, primer, uh, which he wrote on the 25th of June, and there's also a follow-up post. Um, but essentially, uh, the Hugo administrators, which is Discon's second set of Hugo administrators, uh, resigned en masse. Um, a little later, we, there was much discussion on the internet of the fact that Worldcon had said that they would limit uh, finalists where there were more than four finalists for a single, uh, a single uh, entity, to only being allowed for four people and a guest uh, in the pre-Hugo uh, reception in the reserved area for the, the ceremony. Um, they have now uh, changed their mind again and will now allow uh, group nominees to send as many people as they would like. Um, and of course, this all takes place on a backdrop of, you know, last year's Hugo ceremony being very long and uh, mangling lots of people's names and a kind of history of... Uh, Worldcon's not doing very well by large groups of finalists or pronouncing their names. So I recommend that you read those two posts and all the links that spin off for them if you want to know more. Uh, as a, an even more follow-up to this, uh, the chair of Discon 3, Bill Lohorn, resigned this week. This was obviously the second Discon 3 chair to resign after his co-chair already resigned over a previous uh, Hugo finalist uh discussion so yeah it doesn't seem to be going super great for discon and the hugo specifically um but there have been some signs of movement in that they have a new head of the wisfus division um linda denneroff 
And there's been some more communication now from Gaddy Evron, who is the head of events and appears to have taken charge of um, uh, make, getting some communication going with the Hugo Award finalists in order to try and uh, put things straight. So I'm actually one of the very few members of the Hugo team that did not resign because my work does not affect the related area and um, because we've, we're almost done. We've still got a few little bits and pieces to tidy up, but we're basically finished. Um, so we're carrying on. Um, Wusfus Division now has a new division head, which is Linda Deneroff. Um, so thanks very much, Linda, for taking on a poison. It's like it's like it's a poison chalice, and you know that the previous two people who've picked it up have kind of keeled over a bit later, going, "Ah, no, it really was poisoned." <laughs> but no, I'm sure it'll be fine now. Um. And our our uh, best wishes with Nicholas White's family. <laughs> um, Nicholas is fine, but Nicholas and his team resigned. Um, and then the chair resigned, so Bill Lawn has resigned. So there's a process by which Discon will appoint a new chair. I think Bill sent a note round thanking everyone for their work and giving some sort of final thoughts and experience wishes for what might happen now that he's no longer chair and that included a possible name for a chair which seemed pretty sensible name to me um, but I think it is in the hands of you could do with a sound effect for that as well John I think I've got one uh, please hold <laughs> uh... I have no idea what's going on right now <laughs> I think it's that. Oh, you're being sad you trombone. It. Okay. You think sad trombone is the official... The name of the um, parent organisation is Boston Washington Association for... Wilcon Administration or wah 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 Oh, I see. Okay. So it is wah 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 It kind of works quite well. I mean, it's a good acronym. 10 out of 10 to whoever came up with it. I like it a lot. Uh, mainly because it is a little bit silly in a way that I enjoy. Wah 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 wah. But I don't really know any more than, than has been publicly stated, which is that there was a big row and now they have reversed their previous position. So um, I am on, uh, I am I am a Hugo finalist. Um, and uh, so I've been in a couple of, dis- or I've witnessed a couple of discussions. I don't want to say I've been in them because I don't really feel like I've contributed in any meaningful way. Uh, but I've witnessed a few discussions around this from the finalists' perspective. And I know that there have been discussions between the finalists and uh, the uh, events division at Discon, uh, which have led to some of these things being um, kind of rolled back slightly. I think a lot of this is coming from the fact that the finalists are after the big bust up when Colette Fozard resigned. Um, there was quite a lot of worry around kind of the relationship between Discon 3 and the Hugo finalists. And that led, I think, to Strange Horizons putting a 80 um, person um, team in to their um, category uh, in the awards. And so I think, and you know, that they did that in order to try and make a point and to make that point forcefully but i think the problem with that is is it did make that point forcefully and i've seen a number of people not just on the discon 3 side of this saying well that was not 
a particularly diplomatic thing to do. And I think part of the problem here is that DC are worried that there are finalists acting in bad faith with regards to naming lots of names. And the finalists are worried that Discon 3 is acting in bad faith because they want to strike back against finalists having lots of names. And I am worried that basically at the moment both parties in this discussion are coming at this from the perspective that the other party is acting in bad faith and i think that is one of the reasons we're seeing this blow up very quickly when there are problems um and i and to be clear i don't think the i don't think the discussion we've had has been a bad thing um but i do wonder whether that has not helped de-escalate as it were i think that this assumption that people are trying to be difficult or are acting in bad faith or that the reason where that lines have to be held is because otherwise everything will come crashing down in a year or two is I think because nobody's had a chance to get together in a room this is everybody is very tetchy people are tetchier than you'd expect them to be normally I did talk about this a bit in my conspire talk but um I think it's more generally true that you're seeing situations that would have been resolved by people hanging out and having a chat just not getting resolved and just getting worse and worse over the last 18 months and they've probably got a little bit more to get worse yet because I don't think necessarily the oh yes we will give free passes free day passes and to everyone who's listed on a Hugo ballot um, and we will list everybody who's involved in the production of a finalist work on the Hugo Villard if they wish, is a, is a permanently sustainable option. So eventually that is going to cause problems down the line, probably, but it might not. You might see, because I think there are probably quite a lot of other things going on the Hugos that involve large teams, where the large teams are kind of looking at this and going, oh, maybe we should expose the size of our team a bit as well. I just want to ask, when you say because people haven't got together in a room for you. Who specifically do you mean? Like the, the Discon Hugo team or people in general? Or I think at the moment, because of the pandemic, because we are all uh, at the tail end of 18 months of extreme stress and haven't had much interpersonal contact, we are all doing badly expressing ourselves to everyone else. And so I, I think... Um, and I think that I've been seeing that work with people being more irritable with each other than usual as well. Um, so I, I don't think it's just fandom or like discolony is like humanity as a species. I think we've underestimated the extent to which business gets done in side conversations, in coffee shops, in at parties at, oh, I heard you. The, you know, the, the, uh, somebody's talking about Strange Horizons putting 87 people on the ballot. Can I introduce you to so-and-so who's a member of Strange Horizons Editorial Collective? And then 10 minutes later, they're, they're fast friends and are at the bar. You know, that sort of thing doesn't happen. Doesn't happen very much on, on Zoom. So I've, I think to push back against that a bit, one of the things that have come up in the discussion is Strange Horizons are saying, you know, they have a very large number of people on the finalists, uh, listed as finalists, but they never expected more than a handful to come to the convention because many of them are not regular congoers, partly because they're an extremely geographically dispersed team. So they're not people who are going to be in those conversations anyway. Um, so that may not be 
like it just feels like we're saying an explanation is oh well they were not sort of there having these discussions but i guess the chances that people would be introduced these people are low if these people are not feeling like they can make it to our conventions anyway yeah i think some of those people who were speaking for them would have been there as well yes and i mean i think another part of the problem is i think people have been speaking sort of for strange horizons or assuming things on behalf of strange horizons or suspecting that really any of the issue with the number of Hugo finalists was caused directly by Strange Horizons when it doesn't appear to be because they seem to be quite happy with only having four people at the actual ceremony because that's about the number they expect to attend. But I would say, sorry, I would say I think there's actually sort of three sides to it almost, which is there's the people saying, you know, it seems weird to me to list this many people and, you know, you can't expect to get more than, you know, four into ceremony. Then there's the people saying, well, we want everyone to be listed. We know not everyone will be able to attend or be actually present as a finalist, but we do definitely want them all to be listed. But then you also have a third group who seem to be saying very much that if you are a Hugo finalist, you need to be treated as a Hugo finalist. And that has to encompass everyone, which means in a way you kind of have to give all of those 87 people the same opportunity to be there and be on the stage and... You know, what if they what if more of them did manage to attend than you thought might attend? Then you necessarily need to to treat them in in that way. And that, I think, is not something that Strange Horizons have asked anyone to say. Um, It's coming from other groups who feel very strongly that if everyone is a Hugo finalist, they have to be treated in in the same way as a Hugo finalist. So I think almost somewhere at the intersection of those three is where we're getting the issues coming up. Hmm. There's definitely also a a thread of and. And it, furthermore, the Worldcon doesn't make enough of Hugo finalists that the experience of being a Hugo finalist is fundamentally bad. And um, I've been a Hugo finalist quite a lot of times and I didn't find it so. But it also, it's fair to say it really only consisted of here's an envelope with a ribbon and a pin in it and we'll see you on Saturday. So, I think recently we have seen more and more discussion of using Hugo finalists more and more in the world con and there's been discussions about you know if your program doesn't reflect enough of the finalists um then is that okay i do wonder whether part of that is a gradual shift or or shift in perception um away from conventions as a place where fans talk about their experiences to conventions as a place where you know pros talk and fans listen um, and that's something we've touched on on Octothorpe before. And I don't think there's a right answer, but I definitely think there are multiple schools of thought. And I think where you stand on some of this stuff will be very much a function of where you stand on that question. Um, from my perspective, I find value in both. I like listening to people who are very good at doing things, talk about those things. That's very interesting. But I also like listening to fans talking about how they relate to the genre i find that interesting and i i do wonder whether there has been no room for nuance or for kind of acceptance that there might be um uh, perspectives here that are very well-intentioned perspectives which are logistically very difficult to accommodate i think this is a bit of a, a red herring argument in some ways in that i think there are very few I think there are very few cases of a Hugo finalist who is attending Worldcon that you would not want to use on program somewhere, whether it be a fan attendee or a pro attendee. Um, and I think there's very there's very rarely sufficient numbers that they're going to overwhelm, you know, going to con- constitute such a huge amount of program participation that it pushes out 
other people is my feeling. Now, again, if you did have a, a, an entity which nominated its entire staff, um, and there were significant numbers of them and they were going to attend, then that might be a problem. But at the moment, I don't think it is a problem because they basically don't, you know, when these don't attend in sufficient numbers to be really overwhelming the program. And many of them will make fairly last minute decisions and they're usually very accommodating if you say, okay, we'll, we'll try and slot you in for something, but we can't promise anything uh, at this point. So at the moment, it doesn't seem like that is a a, a really big logistical problem. My experience from Worldcon is that fan programming, even extremely good fan programming that's really well thought through, does not draw the audiences of even minor writers. Um, So you will get a bigger audience for four writers who are as dull as toast talking than you will for incredibly interesting, funny fans and um that's i think just the way it is in the demographic we've got now um might less be true might be less true in the us um than it is in european world cons my primary experience of this in european world cons and when we kind of say oh we're not sure we could put everyone who asked on the program i think we probably can almost everyone apart from the people who say oh i can only do things you know, between the hours of 12 and 2 on Thursday and Saturday. I mean, that's always going to be difficult. Um, I was on a programme item at Con Zealand, and nobody should go back on and check, with a kind of random fan from the Midwest who really didn't have anything interesting to say on the topic and I think must just have been somebody who was, you know, was not like a Hugo finalist. It, and, and I kind of take that as my standard for if the Worldcon has room for people like that on the programme or people like me, it's definitely got room for the Hugo finalists. All of them. Every single one. As long as they get their programming form in, yeah, pretty early. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's probably true. I mean, I, but I do wonder whether, so for example, one of the big controversies about Con Zealand is that the programme didn't have enough content from the finalists and Mary Robinette Coel was parachuted in with like two weeks to go this was san jose wasn't it or was it san jose i think it's san jose she was but con zealand also had the same i mean con zealand did have some of the same issues and um and some of the same people doing program and this is so i think so i think just to be precise i think which is that i think con zealand specifically had a problem with the hugo finalists and pulled in some help but it was san jose which had a problem in general i think and pulled in mary robinette coal to help Okay. Let's try it. This oh, I way. thought you were going to. Yeah, okay. Successive Worldcon programming teams have struggled to make the diversity of the program reflect the diversity of the genre and participants, and in particular, Hugo finalists. And there's more that we can do here, and some Worldcons are better than others. Yeah, I think it's definitely fair to say that we are saying that, you know, we, we don't think it is usually a problem to accommodate Hugo finalists on welcome programs. There have definitely been examples where it has not happened in the way you would want it to happen. And of course, from the outside, the difference between like, if it is actually difficult to accommodate someone and you haven't really made an effort to do it look pretty similar. So there's, there's two things here. So one is that normally when I've been involved with program, what happens is at some point you go to the Hugo team and say, uh, can you tell me like who's attending and then we can cross check them on our list of program. And if they are uh, attending and we don't have them down for program, you know, can you send them a, an, an email asking them to get in touch with us? Um, 
But the other thing is, there is a kind of distinction here in that sometimes for pros, it's very easy to add, say, a reening or a signing or a cafe clutch at the very last minute um, that gives them a way to meet their fans and a way to participate in the program that can be quite difficult um, for like uh, fan category nominees because usually you want to put them on a panel or you want to say give them an item you know about um you know a live a live recording of their fan cast or something like that and those are much more difficult to sort of wedge in at, at the last minute it's much easier to say okay i've got a spare reading slot here are four slots can you do any of them fine we've got you in but i think the other thing here is obviously that you know world cons need to be doing their part to make sure that their their programs do reflect the diversity of the genre and if that is through making sure that hugo finalists you you might not have usually put on program get on program um then that is a very good way of doing that but also kind of from the the general membership like um i think you know we we went through this and i think to a large extent um have now been through this with with um with making sure that panels reflect gender diversity and it's about time we start working on the other aspects that we can work on um and you know i appreciate that's hard um i think hopefully we start to see younger people in the community step up to that kind of role in order to wield their ability to re-examine some of the assumptions in this field in order to bring those more diverse programs and i'm hoping that that will happen and that's one of the things i was impressed by uh, when when Liz was deputy DH in Lungcon Three, was that the pool of people working on that program, I think, was a much more diverse pool of people than you could have brought on. And that's, you know, one of the things that you can do is make sure that you've got a diverse group of area heads who are presumably going to be better at identifying diverse people to speak. And that's something I think Glasgow is trying to do. I mean, obviously Glasgow don't have their programming team together yet, but they're clearly trying to bring people into their organisation who are not necessarily the usual suspects and i think that that can only work to help world cons become more diverse and more reflective of the diversity of the genre which i think is great um so uh yeah hurrah for that there may also be a need for world cons to think about what a world con program looks like from the from the ground up because i think it's easier for a a new convention to come in and say well we want we want to have a diverse program and we're going to do it by getting getting these voices in from all of these different places if if Wilcon start from the point of view of we know what a Wilcon program basically looks like and we can obviously change it up a bit each year it's much harder to get to the end point of a of a modern program i think but they do get to try again every year it's true just one last question before we move on to other topics um do we think that this is something that's easier or harder for Worldcon as an organisation that doesn't have that or doesn't have as much institutional memory? Because it feels like it should be easier, but the fact that both San Jose and Zealand had if difficulties with this m- m- might m- put the lie to that assumption. Worldcons are not as different as you think you- they are, particularly US ones. As yeah. As- I think the question of Worldcon institutional memory could probably take as long as discussing how we would do a Worldcon uh, program from the ground up. Oh, I did want to say one other, one last thing about Discon 3, which is they cannot get a break. They are having an incredibly hard time. And I do feel very sorry for them. Yeah, bless them. I mean, a lot of it, or maybe not a lot of it, but there's quite a lot of it. There's own goals, but it doesn't make it less painful to watch. 
Yeah, we didn't even talk at all. I mean, I feel like we may have underdone it by not talking at all about how um, rubbish their communication was. Did we talk about how rubbish their communication was, the Hugo finalists? Maybe we ran out of time. We probably did a bit. Oh, yeah, no, we probably should talk about that. Discon 3's communication to finalists was um, somewhat deficient. Um, I think a lot of finalists only found out that there was this limit when it was announced. Uh, And although I think... um, Discon 3 talked about a consultation. Uh, none of the finalists felt that they had been consulted uh, in advance of the uh, announcement being made. And I, and I think some genuine consultation would have helped. Now, I'm going to say something which might be slightly um, off topic, um, but I do wonder to what extent this is because the job of organising the Hugo ceremony falls under a different division to the job of organising the Hugos. And I, and I have always wondered why the Hugo ceremony is under events and the Hugos are under Wusfus. That I, I think the Hugos are a big enough tentpole of a world con that they probably deserve their own division. Um, and that would be something I wonder whether that would make the communications a little bit more joined up and maybe help avoid this in future. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm incorrect there, I don't know. Um, but does anyone have any thoughts on, on how Discon 3 communicated with the finalists um, and how that went? Well, I mean, I don't get the finest communications, but uh, it, it seems like, you know, judging by their action, many of them did not feel that they were, you know, being honoured as uh, Hugo finalists, but, you know, seems like treated as like something of an inconvenience because there's too many of them to fit in the room, um, which is not a good look. Um, and as for communications, I, I can see the argument for Hugo division, but I, there's also a lot of places where divisions in Worldcons have to interact and maybe don't do a great job of doing it. Um, and lots of areas you could improve that. I think we shouldn't merge events and Wusfus. Well, we know we could merge events and Wusfus. It'd just be really weird. Fundamentally, events is about how you put a big thing on a stage and every day of the convention. Yeah, and there's there's too much similar. I think there's too much between like the Hugo's and Masquerade to split them into any distinct chunks without then basically doing the same thing twice. Yeah, d- d- divisions have to work. Divisions have to work together effectively and boards have to work together effectively and and clearly Discon did have some issues, may still have some issues on that front. Um, I didn't see, obviously not a finalist this year, and I did see some some stuff coming that I was copied into that I had to say I didn't think was perfect. So yes, so if you've got the two divisions and they don't really get the chance to... Um, sit down and work through the issues properly and then get it to, if it needs to go to the chair or to the board for a decision, get that happening at an early enough stage. That's when the sorts of problems that arise here. In retrospect, at the point where Colette resigned and they issued a note saying we will work individually with finalists on things around the ceremony and attending the convention and so on, that at that point they should immediately have started the process of making that happen and that clearly didn't quite happen in the way that they'd planned probably because they were busy fighting other fires around their hotel going bankrupt you know and and that sort of thing you can see how that would cause the problems with the hugos to kind of get pushed down the road until the point where they then blew up and i don't think discon's problems are entirely confined to the Hugos. I think what we're seeing is we had a convention that had a problem overall with its divisions pulling together and the Hugos was the, it has been the touch paper for it. Um, 
if you had a Hugo's division, you'd put the rest of Wusfus into it because the rest of Wusfus is relatively tiny. So it would just be the Wusfus division plus half of events. But I do wonder whether if this had been under Nicholas, this would not have happened. And so if it was up to me, I would say the Hugo administrator administrates all of the things to do with the Hugos, especially at times when they have come in to fix problems with your communications about the Hugos. Um, But maybe... So I take your point. I just wonder whether the Hugos are high profile enough that it might be wise not to introduce potential points of miscommunication within your own organisation around them. Um, But I don't know. At some point, you have to have a consistent view of what the convention believes and what its policies on things are. That there's a there was a problem with the division heads and the board actually communicating any useful way, and I don't know where that problem rests. Obviously, what I said about having a Hugo division rather than different divisions, each of which interact with the Hugos, does presuppose that the problems that Discon Three had came from uh, disparities and miscommunications between divisions, and not from the chair. The chair has resigned and they are currently looking to put a new chair in. This is the second, well, so Colette Fozard resigned and she was the co-chair of Discon 3 and now Bill Lawhorn has resigned and and he was the the remaining co-chair who had become therefore the chair of Discon 3. Um, And so like I suppose the other argument is if these decisions were taken at the very highest point, restructuring the divisions wouldn't have helped and and then that explains why um, Bill has has resigned because this is presumably a fundamental difference of opinion between um, the Hugo team and the chair rather than the Hugo team and other parts of the Discon structure. And there's no way for us to know, um, but the fact that the chair has resigned might be suggestive or might not in that regard. I think the fact that the chair has resigned and the policy has been reversed might be. Yes. Uh, we stress, dear listeners, that this is speculation. If your head of Hugo's goes to the chair and to the board and said, well, you can hold this line as long as you want, but it's not sustainable. And when it gets out into the public, it's all going to fall apart. The director of communication should be there saying either no, my view is it's manageable and this is the line that we will take on it and this is how we will hold it. Or they say, no, I'm with the, I'm with the head of the Hugo division here, with the division here, and it's not sustainable. Now, I would say that that's why you have, you know, why head of communications is a board level role on the Worldcon, because you are going to have Um, things that come up that are going to require the entire board to speak coherently with one voice on a line that the members of the convention will tolerate and i don't think they i don't think they'd be doing that i think don't think discon has done that very well at all well they don't have one they don't have a communication director and that gets back to why i've asked eastercon to merge basically merge promotions and publications into communications because i agree with you there needs to be a consistent line of communication but i don't think any fanish convention actually does that because they don't have communication they have outreach and i would argue the outreach division is not i mean i think probably it is doing a lot of the communications the role of a communications division but like it's not geared towards that it's geared towards advertising effectively and so I and, and then you've got publications, which are the other half of the voice of the convention. And you probably need to merge those two into a communications division that does what you just said. Because I completely agree someone needs to be on the board doing that. Generally speaking, it's the chair. So if you look at Dublin, for example, the voice of Dublin was James Bacon's voice. 
I think we are so far off topic. This is actually a different discussion, especially there was a Joff's post about the voice, like what is the voice of a convention and conventions with individual voices that might be interesting for a future podcast. Do we want to kind of draw this to a general conclusion? Oh, a general conclusion of Discon? Yeah. I've got no idea how to do that. No, me either. Yeah, it's got virtual memberships and they're $75, which is an absolute steal because you should be paying $50 for the Hugo packet anyway, which is an absolute steal. So an extra $25 for hanging out with fans online for five days in the week before Christmas when you won't be busy at all. does seem like... I mean, $25 is nothing. It was £17. I mean, if I go into town and go for curry and have some beers it's going to cost me more than 17 pounds i mean i I feel like this is this is now so cheap as to be a no-brainer everyone should join discon 3 and have a big vanish party and there will definitely be excellent social spaces otherwise i'll kill somebody no um sorry on the topic of virtually attending world cons there is a post on dream with from Anne k gray who says that she is looking for people or suggestions uh, f- people to join the working group to address the question of remote attendance and or participation in the Wussfuss business meeting and suggestions for the same. So if anyone is interested in uh, being on that working group or suggesting things for that working group, uh, then please do uh, get in touch. We've put a link to that post in the show notes, uh, but I'm sure if you can't work out how to get in touch with Anne, if you don't want to comment on her dream width post, then we can put you in touch as well. Anne was the TAF administrator when I won TAF, uh, and, and she is a good egg. And it's good to know that they're working on it. She is, but why would you ask people to do that in a dream width post rather than, say, on Joff or File 770 or something like that? See also problems with communications uh, at Worldcoms. <laughs> No, but I mean, I, I had not seen this. And as someone with, I think, quite defined views on this, uh, I'm glad that Liz spotted it. Um, Liz, how did you find it? I got it off Twitter. Last weekend, we went to Conspire, where Alison was the guest of honour. was one of the guests of honour, along with John Clute and Tarda Thompson. Yes. And for those who have not been listening to Octothorpe for long, Conspire was the combined BSFA and Science Fiction Foundation AGMs and had panels alongside. And Alison ran an after party because I texted her and said, are you running an after party? And she did. And it was great. And we all got a bit too drunk. It, had a, it was very interesting because I put put it on not only the places where I would invite friends to my parties, but I also put it on the BSFA Discord and said, anyone who fancies an after-party after Conspire, come along. So we had a mix of the normal sort of lushes and people who might otherwise have thought they were getting serious science fiction talk, who were, seemed to be quite surprised to be exposed to Graham Charnock and Nick Fari saying, get off my lawn. Like a... a- good surprised or a bad surprise and Alison's talk was on the topic of her year in virtual fandom and um was i think well received my friends liked it that is true <laughs> i don't know if anyone who wasn't my friend liked it it's now available on the internet so you can laugh at me oh nice well put a link in the show notes anything else to say on conspire i spent the first half of it panicking about my talk so I hope it was good.
And then I listened to Tardis Talk, which was immediately after mine. And my inter- he was interviewed by Caroline Mercy, and that was pretty interesting. That's probably also available online. Um, we will put a link to the BS- BSFA Discord in the show notes uh, where you can go if you'd like to see what people said about Conspire while they were there uh, and, you know, chat to the sort of people who attended. That was the Octothorpe podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. The other day, uh, I think the day before yesterday as we record, possibly yesterday, uh, it was announced that there is going to be a second season of Good Omens. Gosh, wow, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I would have been mildly excited about this, I think. Uh, Maybe, you know, polite intrigue to uh, a general feeling of vague positivity. If it were not for the fact that they have announced that John Finnemore will be a writer on the project, uh, my excitement went from vague to specific and intense. So I am super excited about this because John Finnemore is a writer of some repute. He has made many radio programs which I love and worked on television programs which I also love and I am hugely excited to see him uh, being on a science fiction television project uh it's going to be very good or a fantasy television project i suppose uh delete is applicable depending on your views on genre i feel like having neil gaiman partner with a co-writing partner who is much funnier than he is can only be to the benefit of the project because that's obviously how the good omen original good omens worked because gaiman has great strengths as a writer but he's not really a humorist um go on i'll just stand here while our entire audience writes in tells me i was gonna say direct letters of comment to octothorpecast at gmail.com come on i don't think that i just don't think that's too i mean he's he's kind of whimsical and has a sense of of the absurd and the the liminal spaces between um, reality and fantasy and all of that stuff but I don't think he's funny whereas Pratchett is one of the funniest writers ever to live and as John says, John Finnemore's pretty bloody funny, so that's quite good and and I think the best bits of the previous Good Omens were the bits that came from the original and they were not the bits that that Gaiman kind of padded in later because those bits were less funny it's very strange to me because I remember getting Good Omens out of the library when I was maybe, oh, I don't know, 12 and I read it and then I closed the book and I went back to the beginning and I read it again. I may have said that on the podcast already, but I basically loved it. And so it's very strange to me to find that they're, they're saying they're making even more of a Good Omens TV show and I'm not immediately jumping up and down with joy. I very much enjoyed the first series of Good Omens, but I did think it was a bit too slavishly devoted to the book in that it took jokes that work on the page, but maybe not on TV, and then forced them onto TV. Like, a lot of narration. A lot of narration. Um, and I think there's also a few bits of the book that maybe haven't aged well or don't work um, uh, so well on... Maybe don't work so well as on TV because you don't have all the perspectives, but all the bits with um, Chadwell and Mistress Tracy, like, were strangely not funny 
anyway i'm sure they used to be in the book and i don't know whether that's yeah because i have changed or the book because that the tv doesn't work as well as a book that was a bit rambly um so good omens too i am tentatively hopeful because there isn't a book there's just discussions that neil gaiman and terry pratchett had about a sequel that they never wrote so there isn't sort of a uh, a book that they will follow very, very slavishly and maybe insist on keeping all the funny lines in from it because they'll have to write the funny lines afresh. Um, and I think this could be good because it might mean you get something better suited to TV. It sounds like they got John Finnemore, who the small amounts of John Finnemore I've listened to were very good. And everyone tells me I should go and listen to more John Finnemore. So maybe I will go and spend three hours on a plane listening to John Finnemore's souvenir program. Um, so I'm tentatively hopeful. Oh, there is one thing I would say, Liz, which is how much do you enjoy laughing until you cry in front of strangers on a plane? Oh, that might be a problem because I can't take my mask off to blow my nose. So maybe I'll have to wait until I'm in quarantine. So, so yeah, I'm sort of tentatively optimistic, but I'm not like jumping up and down and being very excited yet. But I did think David Tennant and Michael Sheen were very, very good. So I... I, I will echo everything you just said um, in the same position that Good Omens was one of my very favourite books. It's, uh, I discovered it in the school library and, and yeah, like you, reread it multiple times um, and loved it. And also, I, I enjoyed the first season of the TV show, um, but I think I was... I am in the same boat as you that when I heard that season two was happening, uh, which I actually heard a punctuation, it did not fill me with joy. I was just like, oh, cool, I'll probably watch that. Uh, and it is very much the news that, that Finnamore is attached that has taken me up. Um, but I will say, I, I do find Neil Gaiman funny. I, I, I find, um, especially, um, oh, God, what's it called? The one in London. Neverwhere. Especially Neverwhere, I, I remember finding very funny when I read. Um, so I don't know. I mean, he's nowhere near as funny as Pratchett. I think that is, uh, it would be ludicrous for me to try and argue otherwise, um, even if it meant we got letters. Uh, but um, but yeah, I think I, I probably find him more funny than Alison, it sounds like. <laughs> I like Gaiman well enough. I just don't think that his humour is the primary thing that's good about his work. Um, I am enough older than either of you that, I was an actual adult at the point where Good Omens came out. I I saw you I saw you reacting very sadly <laughs> when me and Liz were saying that, and I was like, "Sorry, Alison, that was an accident." <laughs> and I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I thought it was a very good novel. I but it didn't have the same formative influence on me that it did for people who read it as a as a young teen. I'm fairly sure it was my introduction to both Gaiman and Pratchett. I might be wrong about that, but I think... It, it sold very well. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 licence. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.